morning. Wonderful blessing, glad you could be here and uh, I pray again as always that the message is a, a blessing for you. Uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to preaching it and uh, I'm, I'm sad this topic is coming to a close today but no doubt it will get revisited in time to come as we go forward but we're closing off the series this morning on the scriptures so remember that we began this as an introduction to well not an introduction to but as part of a bigger series called our doctrinal series the next one we're going to be dealing with is God himself it's number two in our doctrinal statement the first in the doctrinal statement was the holy scriptures and and so should it be so should it be one of the things that I think that we really forget is that the underpinning of our faith, the underpinning of Christianity, has nothing to do with your personal preference, has nothing to do with your feelings, has nothing to do with tradition. Everything that we know about Christ and about eternity and about salvation is in the Word of God, it's in the Bible. Well, it would stand to reason then that the Bible being the very underpinning of our faith, we should be able to identify I know that it sounds a little bit out there, but to me that stands to reason. It's the very foundation of our faith. But where is it? Where is it? Why is it that this church holds to one particular version out of many? Why do we hold to the King James Version of the Bible as aside from any other? And and I'm pretty sure that if you go through this series again from the first one all the way through to this one, I think you'll find there are many, many not only logically consistent arguments, but you'll also find many, many changes that have been made in the modern translations. And I was really blessed, I mentioned earlier that we're really blessed with regards to a podcast series that just begun called Fringe Frequencies, that's the one, Fringe Frequencies, I'll give that a plug when it comes up, Fringe Frequencies. And, um, and I was privileged to be invited as a guest and to talk about the King James Version of the Bible. It was one of the questions that actually came up in there that I'm not sure if we got to or not. I think we might have gotten to. And it was with regards to, is the King James Version the best translation as a translation? Is it because it's more accurate? And it's an interesting one because it's a bit of a two-edged sword, that one. Um, the fundamental thing that we need to consider is every single modern version does not translate from the same text. The King James Version has a body of scriptures, a body of text that underpin it and it is the final one that of all the English translations, it is the last one that uses all those manuscripts that underpin it where modern translations actually come from a completely different text type. Matter of fact, it is a created text, a man-made text in 1881. That's what all the modern translations are based on. So you might have a version of the modern translations that perfectly word for word translate the the underpinning text, but it's the underpinning of a very corrupt text. It's a text type that the King James translators had access to and they discarded deliberately. So when you ask the question, is it a better translation? The real question is, what text does it translate? What text does it translate? Completely different text type. Anyway, this morning we are going to be completing the series with the permanence of truth, the eighth in the series. It's the eighth. Is that okay with the... Yeah, 
but it's still recording up there. Yeah, it's just it's in and out with regards to the uh, the live stream. Can't do anything about it. So, um, so it, the focus for our text this morning, the focus for this for the message this morning, is on Psalm 12 verses six and seven. The whole thing is fit in a context of man's words, man's lips, man's lying lips, and how he desires to un- undermine man himself as the wicked. And then right towards the end here, we see the contrast, and that is with regards to the words of the Lord. It simply says this, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you, dear Lord, that you might be with me this morning as I bring the word of God to my brethren, that they may hear the wonderful truth of the scriptures and also, dear Lord, that they might apply them logically to their own mind, that in every way, dear Father, if they had not been yet convinced of the reality that only one version of the English Bible could ever claim to be your words, I pray, dear Father, that this might set them to, uh, to at least believe that premise. We ask you, dear Father, that you would bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. There are going to be individuals who may have, and I'm, and I'm hoping, have either gotten to a point where they would at least look at the premise that we are laying as reasonable. If not, have given themselves completely over to believing that the King James Version of the Bible is the very Word of God for the English-speaking people. And I'm, and I'm hoping that I had some small part to play with regards to that. Because it is, as I mentioned last time, the most controversial issue in Christianity today. Matter of fact, so controversial that it's never even spoken of. Yet it's the elephant in the room. This morning we're going to be dealing with the permanence of truth and we're going to be talking about pure words kept, preserved forever. There are my four points. Pure words kept, preserved forever. The work of the translators of the King James Bible were not simply to create a version of the Bible that sort of slaved away at a simple, literal, but rather academic word-for-word translation. Their effort was to provide the English world with that which was also represented in the original text of the Bible, both in Hebrew and in Greek. A work of, of, of beauty, a work of poetry, a work of rhythm, of, of, of meter, a depth, a word that is expressed both in the eye and the ear, a definiteness of expression. Words and phrases that have characteristics to them expressed in ways to put hooks into our minds that we might take warning and that we might also rejoice and that we might remember, that we might remember. Choosing to employ employ largely single-syllable words, the translators would fulfil the cry of William Tyndale who expressed to a Roman Catholic bishop who trusted rather in the Pope than he did in the Word of God and told him, I will cause the ploughboy, the boy that ploweth the field, to understand more of the Scriptures than thou doest. And that would stand to reason if it was a simple translation, contrary to our 
our current frame of reference, many people think that it's more difficult to understand. Well, there's reasons for that, but it's got nothing to do with the text. Nothing to do with the text. And we'll demonstrate this morning how the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, is actually technically the simplest to read. You can throw something at me later, but it's true. God uses also rhythm. He uses rhythm to ensure that we might remember. He uses meter that we might memorize. He uses synonyms that we might learn. Beauty of expression that we might also be in awe of thy word. The English Bible is the high point of the English language. It will never be dethroned. It will always stand as a monument as it has done for the last 400 years. As seen in the original languages, the word of God in English was not only about choosing the right word in meaning, but also from a pool of several hundred thousand words, thousand English words, to choose the very precise word that carries to the heart a memorable anchor for the soul and that will stand forever. On our Wednesday night Bible studies, I find it really interesting because we would, um, even though I'm quoting a verse, I would often not finish that verse. I would I would finish that verse with a or finish a phrase on a, on a word that hooks, the word that actually has a definiteness of meaning. And I wouldn't say that word. I would just wait for somebody else to bring it up. So we would start our study or we would do our study, and as I'm using that that particular text i would stop just before that word and you know what inevitably someone brings it up did they memorize the scripture did they memorize that particular verse did they actually spend time actually memorizing and trying to memorize that verse no no god has hooks with these words and they hook into our minds they placed into our hearts that we might know them You can't say the same thing with a modern translation. You just can't do it. You can't do it the same way. So the first that we have here is pure words. And I hope that you enjoy this point this morning. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. They are pure words. It means that the words of God are unadulterated, they're undefiled, they're undiluted, untainted, unblemished and unmitigated. They are pure words. They are words that carry both meaning and sound. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The sounds of the word are almost as valuable as the meaning But when both are combined, they are powerful and powerful enough to completely alter the course of the human heart. That's what it's designed to do. That's the nature of the Word of God. Think about it. Who is it that framed the mind of man? God did. God did. Who is it that understands and recognizes that the mind of man could be conformed to the nature of this world? God understands that. Does God understand also what it's going to be that actually Um, transforms that mind back to the holiness of God, God does. He knows exactly the tools that are going to be used. Everything within your mind has been framed by words, believe it or not. Words that you have either to confess to your own self or words that actually came from somebody else. 
someone else said something and that something was lodged in your mind and you believed it is true. You get it? Those words carry meaning and they have an effect upon our lives. God desires that our minds would be renewed, would be renewed. Be not conformed to this world, but be thou transformed by the renewing of thy mind, the scripture says. It's the mind that needs to be renewed. Pure words have infinite value. The Lord employs words that have sounds to them that are given to build an emotional response to the individual heart. This is based on how they sound, how they sound. And we all know this. If you've had any little bit of time in marketing, if you've ever been involved in marketing at all, then you'd recognise that they use precise words. If you've ever been involved in politics at all, then you would recognise that the lawmakers use precise words. Politicians employ precise words and often those words are completely opposite to what they actually represent. We're living in an Orwellian world today where things that are actually pronounced to be good are actually evil. Things like safe schools, anything but safe. All those sort of things that are being employed are changing in a way that would better qualify for the direction that the world wants to move. We once heard about and we were continually talked to about global warming. Do you remember that? It was global warming, global warming, global warming, global warming. But when they discovered that the globe was not warming and that matter of fact, there was a, a survey that was being done with all these scientists. They were going to get on this ship and they were going to sail into Antarctica to prove that the ice was melting. You remember that? What happened to the boat? The ship got stuck in ice. The ship got stuck in ice and it actually needed another Russian ship to break it out of the ice. These were all climate change activists to actually prove that the ice was melting and that there was no ice. So they realised that the world was not actually warming and they changed their terminology, didn't they? What did they change it to? Climate change. Climate change. Originally, before it was global warming, it was global cooling. Global cooling in the 1970s, they actually promoted in Time magazine and National magazine, Time magazine, Newsweek magazine. Those two, I've got the covers of those two magazines that actually spoke about global cooling, that we're going to be heading into another ice age. Guess what the, the, the villain was? Carbon dioxide, CO2. Then they, ch- they changed that to global warming. Guess what the villain is? Carbon dioxide, CO2. Now they've turned it to climate change. And guess what the villain is? Carbon dioxide, CO2. I predict that maybe if the Lord tarries, it might turn all the way around and just become weather. You know? Words carry meaning. And the nature of those words how they are, are going to be there to develop an emotional response as well. And Satan knows that full well. For example, we could use words such as God rather than deity. We could use death rather than passing away. Hell as opposed to Hades. Judgment as opposed to assessment. Damned as opposed to condemned. Do you see the nature of those words? There's words that they've got a certain nature with regards to their linguistic 
use. There's plosives, words that are used with a P, that are harsh words, that are other guttural words that actually come from the, the back of the throat. And again, they're there to give a definite response. They're used in that way. And God employs those. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says this, He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The NIV, however, says this, Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You see the nature of it? One is very, very direct. It warns and it also frightens. It's there to give an emotional response, the response that God wants to give. The word damned is employed, not just because it means what it means, because Jesus is speaking about the end of man, and the NIV actually turns that around completely and speaks about the judgment of him, right? But it also is a very strong word. Damned is a much stronger word than condemned. Can you, can you see that? Can you notice that yourself? It genders a, an emotional response. The NLT says anyone who believes and is baptised will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. Again, a lightning of the word. In Psalm 9.17 it says, The wicked shall be turned into hell. The NIV says, The wicked will go down to the realm of the dead. The Good News Bible says, Death is the destiny of all the wicked. We've got a couple of errors here and one of the most important ones is the fact that they are logically inconsistent. Who does not go down to the realm of the dead? Where is death not the destiny of all people? Isn't death the destiny pretty much of all people, saving those that are raptured? Death is the destiny of all people. So, the context actually bears witness to the reality of what the text says. It is the wicked that shall be turned into hell. Okay, that is the context and that is also how it's framed. All people die. All people go to the realm of the dead, but only the wicked shall be turned into hell. There is a specific nature to the text. The warning is both removed and then softened. Satan's greatest desire would be that none are warned of the danger of hell. That's his hope. And so should we should be surprised that his influence would not be found within these modern translations? The other one is that it's difficult to understand. Difficult to understand. I, I've heard that and heard that time and time again. And, and, I, and I accept that and I accept that for two reasons. I accept that simply for the fact that... Um, when you are very, very new in your faith or you're new to reading your Bible, the Bible speaks with a syntax that is very distinct from how we speak, okay? It is very, very different and it also is very, very direct in many, many ways. Those who are either young in their faith are going to find the King James Bible initially difficult to understand but there are the groups who will not be able to understand the Bible and that is those who are lost. The lost will not understand the Word of God because the Word of God is hidden from their eyes. They cannot know because the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in them and the Bible is given by the Spirit of God. Okay, so both those who are young in their faith and you might have been a Christian for 30 years, it's irrelevant. If you don't read your Bible, you're going to stay a babe. Or those who are lost themselves, can't understand the Word of God, it's hidden from them, it's taken away from them. Paul speaks to that directly. 
But then when we talk about whether or not the Bible is actually difficult to understand, let's, let's apply some science to it. So there are great indicators which, when it comes to actually being able to determine to whom a book is got to be pitched. Okay, Flesh King Cade is one of those indicators. There are a number of other ones. If your choice was to write a children's book or a children's novel, it would go before the publishers. They would apply then this particular scientific method of, of directing, well, what grade level will it go to? Will it apply to preppies? Will it apply to grade four, grade five, grade six, year, year, year eight, year nine? What, what level do we apply these? Who, to whom will we pitch this book? What's the market that we're going to be pitching this book to? And so they applied these great indicators. And they're based on a couple of things. Number of syllables per word, average number of words per sentence, average number of sentences per paragraph, etc. They'll use those things. The King James Bible is consistently found in the lowest class of all modern translations. Of all modern translations. It is always set in the lowest class and it ranges from grade 4 to grade 6. The NIV is pitched at year 8, okay, as far as its complexity. And one of those ways is the number of syllables. King James Bible continually employs one and two syllable words the vast majority of the time. Let me give you some examples when we're comparing that head-to-head with the NIV. In 2 Chronicles 15 verse 4, the word in the King James is voice. The NIV, acclamation. Jeremiah 48.30, the word of God is wrath. The NIV, insolent. Ezra chapter 6 verse 2, the word of God says record. The NIV says memorandum. Isaiah 16.6, very, compared to overweening. Esther 1.6, red, the colour red. The NIV, porphyry. All right, so you get into the point where not only do we have a, a shift from a basic monosyllabic phrases of words that are simple to understand to a complexity in the number of syllables but also a difficulty in understanding. But let's move to understanding. Deuteronomy 21.30, the Bible says glutton. The NIV says profligate. Deuteronomy 32.11 says wings. The NIV says pinions. I don't know what pinions are. I've never heard of that before. What's a pinion? Apparently it might be a wing. I don't know. Genesis 12, 9, the Bible says south, as in direction, south. The NIV says Negev. Genesis 6, 4, the Bible says giants. The NIV says Nephilim. In Numbers 34, verse 5, the Bible says river. The NIV says wadi. Genesis 14, 1, the Bible says nations. And the NIV says goyim. Now, goyim is a derogatory term. But in that context of Genesis 14.1, it wasn't written derogatory in a derogatory manner. It was, as, it was written as a statement of fact. But goyim is slanderous. It's actually used by the Hebrews as a degenerative term, basically swearing about these particular people. Do you know what I mean? So that's how it's employed. What about Consistency. Let's have a look at just one example of consistency. The word sad. 
Genesis 40 verse 6, the Bible says sad. The NIV says dejected. Ezekiel 13, 22, the Bible says sad. The NIV says disheartened. In 1 Kings 21, 5, the Bible says sad. The NIV says sullen. Again, you lose the consistency of that word. You also lose the ability of being able to be educated because every single time the word is placed, it's placed in a context and it gives to us an understanding of what that word means. Do you recognise that? That's how it's framed. The NASB is one example and just a short one. Leviticus 26, 22, the Bible says rob. The NASB says bereave. Proverbs 7, 1, the Bible says loud. The NASB says boisterous. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 22, the Bible says cup. The NASB says chalice. Songs 5, 1 says drink. The NASB says imbibe. Jeremiah 42, verse 18, the Bible says curse. The NASB says imprecation. 1 Timothy 3, 3, the Bible says striker. The NASB says pugnacious. And this one I loved, Job 19, 24, the Bible says pen. The NASB says stylus. These are some of the issues with regards to it. So when people say to me that the modern versions are easier to understand, I've got to ask them the question, have you actually read it? I mean, since most Christians don't even read their Bibles anyway, you would actually make that a firm case of being able to ask, have you actually read the NIV cover to cover, the NASB cover to cover, the Good News Bible, the ESV and all those other uh, versions? Have you actually read them cover to cover? There's a lot of Christians who haven't even read the King James Bible cover to cover, you know. So it's not unusual. Archaic words, archaic words. Now, I'm not only going to give you one example. We have complaints continuously about the these and the thous. What, what are they there for? Why are they there? Why do they, what do they, you know, it's just taking out the these and the thous. When I went to get a King James Bible, the lady offered me a new King James saying that they've only taken away the these and the thous and that justified a new translation. That's not the reason why the New King James Bible is created. Nevertheless, even removing the these and the thous is vitally important. Why? Because the these and the thous were considered Old English, but do you know something? They were already Old English when the King James Version of the Bible was created. Those of you who might have a Cambridge edition of the King James Bible have the translator to the reader in their, in their version of the Bible. And that is directly from the translators. You don't find very many these and thous in there at all, if at all. He, they're speaking directly to the dedication to the king, for example, and it's not thou, thy, thine. It's you, you, you. Well, why do they employ it? Because the Greek and the Hebrew both have a second person pronoun that is singular and plural. So when you're speaking to an individual, it's always the singular. It's always thee, thou, thy, thine. But when you're speaking to a number of people, it's always you, 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 your, yours. Okay? So it's used that way. Now, in modern translations, you lose the distinction completely. Is Jesus speaking to Peter? Is he speaking to his disciples? When he says, when he says the, the Lord has desired to sift thee as wheat but I have prayed for you. Well, there's a shift there. 
when he speaks to Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest them that come unto thee, how I would have gathered thee together as a hen does gather her chicks, but ye would not. Has Jesus moved from speaking to Jerusalem as a whole to all of a sudden speaking about the people that are within the city? Do you get it? Okay, it's important to have those distinctions. But nothing's more confusing than the book of Job unless you have those pronouns properly, properly presented as the singular and the plural, plural. We have complaints about those, these and thou's. Now this is, I can't remember what version this was is, did I get, write it down? ESV. This is the ESV, pronounced as a word-for-word translation and this is a few verses of the book of Job and I want you to see if you find a distinction. In Job 13, 2-5, same chapter I'm going to use, What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewashed with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Got it? It goes on. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten me as a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Interesting text. There's all of a sudden a little bit of a confusion. There's an element of the context that you're not quite sure that's changed. And yet, at the same time, it's still you. So you get the impression that Job is still talking to his friends. Yet in the King James, you have it pronounced this way. What ye know, the same do I also know. I am not inferior unto you. Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. But ye are forgers of lies. Ye are all physicians of no value. Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. Wherefore hidest thou thy face, and holdest me for thine enemy? Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro, and wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? For thou writest bitter things against me and makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. Youth, Thou puttest my feet also in the stocks and lookest narrowly unto all my paths. Thou settest a print upon the heels of my feet. Who's Job talking to now? Who? God. God. How do we know? He speaks about it in the singular. The singular pronoun. Job is directing his focus of his words to God directly. Now, you already know and believe that Job is a difficult book to understand, but how much more is thrown under your feet when the pronouns are changed? The pronouns are the same, rather. They're all plural, 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 plural. This is vitally important. The pronouns there are vitally important. So, we get that. The proper use of pronouns matter more than you can possibly appreciate. The present-day confusion will lead greatly to a future misunderstanding as the devil influences the world against the normal use of pronouns. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Pronouns are vitally important and you'll see a little bit more later on. Okay, so what do we do with archaic words? That's always the argument. If these are pure words, what do we do with archaic words? Well, there's an example of how God deals with archaic words. And since the Bible is our final authority in all matters, not just in faith and practice, but in all matters, 
Shouldn't we turn to the Bible and maybe see how God actually deals with archaic words? There's archaic words in the Bible, yeah? Did you know that there are archaic words also in the Hebrew? There's also archaic words in the Greek. Well, how does God deal with the archaic words? Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's the first of those uh, books that are numbered. 1 Samuel. We have the introduction of Saul, who would be the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 9. passage we're going to be looking to this morning has Saul together with his servant go and search for a missing donkey his father set him adrift and he said go and find the asses that are lost so Saul goes to find them and he seeks after the man of God who might be able to tell him where they where they are located now in first in first Samuel chapter 9 there's going to be an archaic word in the text And God himself is going to show us by example how we are to deal with it. You got it? He's going to actually show you how you are to deal with an archaic word. What you're going to recognize is that he honors his word above his own name. He won't change his own words, even though that word had already left its significance. It's left its meaning much earlier than when it was actually penned down. Now, I'm going to read the text. We're going to be reading from verses 7 to 11. And I'm going to deliberately skip verse 9. Now, I want you also, please, don't read verse 9 as we go. The only reason, we're going to read verse 9, but the only reason I want you to not read it is because I want you to get the flow of the passage without verse 9, okay? And see if there's anything missing, all right? Verse 7, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7. Then said Saul to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand the fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way. Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went into the city where the man of God was. And as they went up the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, Is the seer here? Got it? Okay. Notice that verse 9 has no application to the flow of the text. It flows perfectly, doesn't it? It flows continuously as if verse 9 is actually not necessary. Okay? We can see that. We see that clearly. Why has God given us verse 9? Verse 9 says, Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come, let us go to the seer. The he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. How does the Bible deal with archaic words, beloved? Explains it. Just explains it. That's our responsibility as pastors and as teachers. We are simply to do exactly how God deals with it. Not discard the archaic word, but explain it. Explain it. That's our charge. That's our charge. Is it simple? Uh, To me, I I don't know. I reckon that's simple. I I don't think you can get much more simpler than that. We are simply to leave God's word as they are, have God as our example of how to deal with these words. So now we have it. We have God recognising here that even some words have gone out of use, even in the original Hebrew language. So rather than replace the word, he explains it. That's what we do.
Very simple, isn't it? How wonderful is the Word of God? Kept. Our next point. Kept. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Kept. Kept, protected, safeguarded, shielded, etc. This is how the built-in dictionary in the thesaurus of your Bible works. You know, your Bible is a built, has a built-in dictionary. It also has a built-in thesaurus. It's also built into the Word of God, built into the text of Scripture that we can understand synonyms that are found within it. We note that it is God who does the keeping, not man. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And it seems that it is not until man attempts to assume the responsibility that we come to understand why it is that only God can be trusted to keep, to protect, to safeguard, to shield his words. When man all of a sudden decides to step in. So we're going to have a look at man's attempt to step in and we're going to have a look at it in this very verse. Right? In this very verse. The text in Psalm 12, 7 says again, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The NIV says, You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. Wow. It doesn't get any better. The ESV says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Completely ignores the context, completely ignores the use of pronouns. I'll explain that in a minute. The NSB says, You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. This is what happens when man takes over the preserving of God's words. As him. Yeah, yeah. Because the word word in the Hebrew is masculine. Okay? Right? Okay. Clearly the promise of God preserving his own words has already disappeared when man decides to assume the responsibility. Beloved, woke idiocy did not begin in the last few years. It didn't begin in the last few years. It began in the secret chambers of modern day Bible translators. Changing preserve them which pronoun clearly speaks to the Word of God as being the natural antecedent of the second person plural noun words to protect us or guard us makes a grammatical error changing the second person pronoun them to the first person pronoun us, okay? You've got a second person pronoun and it is them and they've changed it to the first person pronoun us, got it? So the changing of these pronouns and the misplacing of those pronouns didn't begin with the ridiculous stuff today. It began with the Bible translators. And this completely changes the message, completely. So the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. In the King James is changed to... The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever, in the ESV. It doesn't even make 
any sense. The NASB goes to a different level of confusion altogether, keeping the second person but changing it to the singular him. So when we change pronouns, we change the message. And in the context before us, we change the clearest representation of the doctrine that, keep, that God will keep his words. We've just changed it. In the very text that we're using for the, for the message this morning. Do you get it? Please don't tell me that there's no differences between modern translations and the King James Version of the Bible. Please. You're losing consistency, you're losing accuracy, you're losing context. These are perverse translations of the Bible that do nothing more than confuse you. That's all that they do. You can't even hope to understand it. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It gets so, so much worse. Remember the first, one of the first messages that I preached on this issue? I brought to your attention a gentleman by the name of Eugene Nieder. Eugene Nieder was a Catholic Jesuit trained man who created the method of translation known as dynamic equivalency. He taught that the better way to translate a word or a phrase would be based on what could be understood by the reader, right? He posited that the words are the same in essence but translated to suit the cultural understanding of the audience, the people at the time. Eugene Nieder said... Words are merely vehicles for ideas. Referring to the contemporary English version, which had direct impact by Eugene Nieder, Dr. David Burke said, it is an idea-by-idea translation, arranging the Bible's texts in ways understandable to today's reader of English. Got it? But it's also culturally uh, defined as well. As stated in that earlier message, formal equivalency limits the translation of versions. All right? When you do a word-for-word translation, you naturally limit the number of versions that you can possibly have. But when it's an idea-for-idea translation, can you limit the number of versions? No. no. All of a sudden, you can have an infinite number of versions. How good is that? You know, Plenty of money can be made now. You can just have a multiple number of versions of the Bible, not limited by really anything. Certainly not limited by the literal translation. Idea by idea opens up infinite versions of the Bible. There are cultures in the world that don't have sheep. Cultures in the world that don't have sheep. As such, they've never seen a lamb. Rather than permit the pastor to teach what a lamb is, dynamic equivalency opens up the way for a cultural understand, culturally understandable reference that the people could relate to. Sometimes it's the use of an ancient sacrificial animal in pagan history that the culture relates to, that dynamic equivalency in translation could also justifiably in their eyes be employed. In a cathedral in Susa, Peru, is a painting of the Last Supper by Marcus Zapata, who substituted the image of the lamb that we have in the Bible for another animal that the people of the Andes remember in their pagan practices. In the Incan religion, it is never a lamb that is sacrificed, but what's known as a, I don't know how to pronounce it actually, a key or a sea. In other words, it's a Peruvian guinea pig. Peruvian guinea pig. This guinea pig is that portrayed in the paintings. You have Christ sitting there with all his disciples and they have a chalice in front of them that also is different to the chalice of wine 
And on the table is not a lamb, but a pig, a little guinea pig. Another painting by the same artist is seen in the monastery of San Francisco in Lima, Lima, Peru, displaying the same animal at the Lord's Supper. These people, the Roman Catholic system, desiring dynamic equivalence in translation, sees Jesus Christ as the guinea pig of God which takes away the sin of the world. David Daniel, in his book, Why They Changed the Bible, wrote of this discovery, saying, This is a visible representation of the Roman Catholic principle used all over the world to blend pagan religions with Christian trappings. That is now labelled dynamic, dynamic equivalence. It gets so much worse. There's, there's another one that uses a, uses a rooster, right? And actually speaks about that, but I won't use the term that they use. That takes away the sin of the world. It's absolutely disgusting. And they use that as their, as their, that's their final authority. The final authority is the culture. It will never be a man that keeps God's words, but God himself. Only the Lord can protect that which is most precious. And I want you to see how this plays out, beloved. Because if God can't keep his own words, what guarantee do you have that he will keep you? John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. God keeps you. God keeps us. God keeps his sheep. He preserves them, he protects them, he holds them, he guards them. No man, not even you, can pluck yourself out of his hand. Once he has you, he has you. Once he has you, he has you and he keeps you. Psalm 37, 24 says, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Beloved, we need the Lord to uphold us. If you think your salvation is is defined only by your ability to keep your own faith, oh, you haven't fallen far enough yet. You really haven't fallen far enough yet. We are hid with Christ in God. If God can't keep his own words, what guarantee do you have he's going to keep you? The Bible says that I magnify my word above my own name. God magnifies his word above his own name and he can't keep it? Preserved. Preserved. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I stated in one of my earlier sermons that I'd come up with a phrase that made some logical sense respecting the inspiration of God and its preservation until now. Okay? It was a simple phrase that I came up with many years ago, and it's simply this Inspiration assumes preservation inspiration assumes preservation and preservation presumes possession in other words if god has inspired his word it assumes naturally that he will preserve his word why would he bother to have inspired it in the first place and if he has preserved his word what's the purpose of preserving his word if we don't have it accessible if we don't have it available. It presumes possession. 
we can possess his words, his very words. They are discoverable, they are findable, they are available. Not to the scholars, not, not to these woke ideologists, but to you, his church, his people. God made the effort to inspire each and every word. Isaiah 47 and 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 1 Peter 1.24 says the same thing, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. It compares time and men as grass, something that is here today and gone tomorrow, but the word of God stands and endures forever. Zechariah 1, 5 to 6 says this, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Clearly the words of God come alive for the people who are the recipients of the word of God and know what he promised. We are living in a day where we are witnessing the word of the God coming the word of God coming together in a way that has never been seen before. In such power there's so many people that actually think that the world's falling apart and yet what we should be saying is no, no, no. No, scripture is coming together. Scripture is coming together. Everything within the word of God is coming together and we can see it evidently today. Psalm 119:89 says, "Forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it abideth. One of the things that we find ourselves reluctant to admit is that we actually quote the Bible every single day. Matter of fact, even the lost quote the Bible every single day and they don't even know it. This is the power of the word of God. This is how the word of God has so influenced a world, a nation, a people, a language that you can't help but go through your day and find yourself quoting the scriptures in one way or another. Today the news often speaks about events in the world as happening in biblical proportions. Well, what are they referring to? They're referring to what happened in, in, in the book of Exodus. They're referring to what happened in the book of Revelation. The world seems to be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Oh, where'd they come from? came from Daniel chapter 5 verse 27. Some people will get away with things by the skin of their teeth. Where's that come from? Job 19:20. Others, they're just going to have a broken heart. Psalm 34 verse 18. There will be those, however, will, who will be at their wit's end. Psalm 107 verse 29. Others will understand that there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes 1:9. They know that the pride comes before a fall, Proverbs, 20, Proverbs 16, verse 18, and that for everything there's definitely a season, Ecclesiastes 3.1. Meanwhile, the world is saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we're going to die, Isaiah 22, verse 13. But some are going to doubt and they'll bite the dust, a reference to Psalm 72, verse 9. Many each day are going to rise and shine, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Others will continue through the night saying there's no rest for the wicked, Isaiah 57 verse 21.
People will think that all their effort is nothing more than a drop in a bucket. Isaiah 40 verse 15. As they consider their work needs to reach the four corners of the earth. Isaiah 11:12. The United Nations believe that all we need to do is to see eye to eye. Isaiah 57 verse 21. Lest some in the world have sour grapes. Ezekiel 18 verse 2. After all, we only have feet of clay. Daniel chapter 2 verses 31 to 33. But seeing that the leopard can't change his own spots, Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 23, they still do their best to the ends of the earth. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10. They will indeed no doubt go the extra mile. Matthew chapter 5 verse 41, even giving the very shirt off their own backs. Matthew 5 verse 40. Some will try to undo the work and they'll sneak in like wolves in sheep's clothing. Matthew 7 verse 15. But this needs to be resisted because a house divided against itself can't stand. Matthew 12 verse 25. They can't allow things to just fall by the wayside. Matthew 13 verse 4. You enjoying this? It's good fun, isn't it? But this is the sign of the times. Matthew 16, verse 3. And we are just flesh and blood. Matthew 16, verse 17. And with our own cross to bear. Matthew 16, verse 24. Though we want to move mountains. Matthew 17, verse 20. We really don't want our head on a platter. Mark chapter 6, verse 25. We might wait to the 11th hour. Matthew 20, verse 6. But in the end, we're going to need, our, need to wash our hands of the matter. Matthew 27, verse 24. I know, I know, the truth might set me free. John chapter 8, verse 32. But I'm not going to be the one to cast the first stone. John 8, 32. Let someone else be the good Samaritan for a change. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 37. These people are in, in the end a law unto themselves. Roman 2.17 and we really just need to trust the powers that be, Romans 13.11. Lastly, we might try to live by the letter of the law, 2 Corinthians 3.6 and would indeed fight the good fight, verse uh, chapter 1 of, sorry, 1 Timothy 6.12 and it's a labour of love after all, verse uh, chapter, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 1.3 because in the end we reap what we sow, Galatians 6.27. We speak the Word of God because we can't help but speak the Word of God. This is the influence that the Word of God has had on our own language. And it's an incredible influence. And I only just scratched the surface with this. I just scratched the surface with this. Matter of fact, I was doing this and I ended up being late to church this morning because I was just having so much fun coming up with all these different ones. It was just a blessing. God keeps His words. God keeps His words. How long? Forever. Last one this morning. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So, when I have a debate with a pastor or with another individual, 
I had to logically, and before I actually came to the position that, that I hold today, I had to frame some questions within my mind that I thought are the most fundamental questions I could ask about the issue. And I, could, I, I still can't think of, of a series of questions that are more important than these five. There might be, but these are the ones that really hit the nail on the head because if I believe that the Word of God is my final authority, then I've got to ask the Bible the question. The first question that came off the rank was, did God promise to preserve His words? Yes or no? If He did not promise to preserve His words, we don't really have an argument here. But did He promise to preserve His words? Is the answer yes or no? Yes, he did promise to preserve his words. That text, that very, that one verse is enough. The next question that I had to ask was, of the character of God or the ability of God? Okay, if God promised to preserve his words, does he have the ability to preserve them? I mean, how powerful is God? He's all powerful. If he promised to preserve his words, clearly he has the ability to preserve his words. There's a reason why the Scriptures actually tell us not to promise. Why are we charged not to promise anything? Because we aren't in control of every single event in the world. Anything could actually undermine our promise. You promise to be at a certain place by a certain time. Well, you can't actually promise that because you don't know if all of a sudden an earthquake creates a great gulf between you and your destination. Do you get it? Okay, we can't promise because we're not in control of the elements God is. So did God promise to preserve his word? Yes, he did. Does God have the ability to preserve his word? Yes, he does. Well, the next question that we've got to be asking ourselves is, if God promised to preserve his word and he's got the ability to preserve his word, did God lie? Can God lie? Again, these, these three questions aren't small questions. They're huge questions. It doesn't get you to this particular version it doesn't get you there, but it gets you to understand that if God promised to preserve his word and God has the ability to preserve his word and he does not lie, it stands to reason that we must have it just there. But all right, the common argument that I get from people is, yeah, but you know, man corrupted the word of God. You know, Man gets in there and he actually throws things apart. And you know, there's some scriptural precedence for that. Paul said that. He said, we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. So there's a testimony there telling you something really significant. And that is that even in the time of Paul, there were many which would attempt to corrupt the Word of God. And indeed, we've got a handful of very, very corrupted texts. Very corrupted texts. 5,800 texts in Greek were discovered. And all of them, there are papyrus texts. And these particular texts are all in line. The vast majority of them, matter of fact, worked out to be about, there's only 45 texts that aren't. 5,800 of them are in direct line. But that's not all we've got. We've got tens of thousands of texts in versions, other languages of the world. All of them testifying to what this Bible says. All of them, except for 45 texts in the Greek. As those 45 texts that were used by modern translators. And they're corrupt texts, clearly. Not used at all in history. Not read in history. That's why they're full volumes. Five of them are full volumes, relatively full volumes. 
The most pages that we have in the other texts are around about 450 uh, pages. That's it. So does God lie? Can man circumvent God's promises? The Bible says there are many devices in the heart of man, yet the counsel of God, that shall stand. So immediately we have the, 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 the big question to the first one is, did God promise to preserve his word? The answer is yes, he did. Does he have the power to preserve his word? Yes, he has. Does God lie? No, he does not lie. Can man somehow get in the way of God? No, he can't. And then this last one was the one that I was stuck on. And I was stuck on this one for a while. A stupid one. I know it's a stupid one. As soon as I say it, you'll recognize it. But the last question to get me to the point where I could actually trust an English translation is, is God limited by language? Is he? To the contrary, didn't he create language? Is it not Satan who confuses people today with a perverse gift of tongues? And all that is, is babble. It's not a language. God changed the languages. God changed the languages. And I was going to go on to a whole history of language and all that sort of stuff as well, because there's a marvellous history with regards to that. All of a sudden, we are at a fixed point now. We are at a point where we need to decide if God has preserved his word, promised to preserve his word, and his inspiration all automatically assumes that he preserved it, then that preservation presumes possession. And if God's promised it, then we should have it. The question that I have to ask you all is, where is it? Where is it? Is it like God to hide it as the Book of Mormon, buried under a tree somewhere? Is it like that? No. Is it likely that in the time of the very last of the last days where the entire world actually speaks English that we have to scour through 400 plus different versions of what God said in order to come up with what he said? No, completely unlikely, completely unlikely. We are at a point right now where we have to trust one way or another. We either give our faith and trust that God has promised to preserve his word and we have it or we don't. There's no halfway, beloved. And I'm I'm a bit tired of talking to pastors who continually refer to another authority when we've got it in our hands. You have, this is the blessing you have, you have the very word of God in your lap. The very word of the living God. It's in your lap. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? This is more precious than anything that you can possibly imagine. You should be devouring this book seriously devouring this book if you can read as fast as you speak 72 hours it takes you to get through it there you go set yourself get give get, give us get some red bull and just stay up for three days all right you can read the whole book cover to cover this book will give you wings not red bull god bless you let's pray heavenly father we thank you dear lord for the word of the living god We thank you, dear Father, we have it within our hands and what a wonderful joy it is to us. What a foundation, what an ability, dear Lord, to know, dear Father, that a final authority is found within our own hands. We know, dear Lord, our own failures and shortcomings. We know, dear Lord, our own minds and how we've been wrong so often. But your book has never been wrong. It is true, it is absolute, it is perfect, it is pure and it is given to us by no other individual other than God himself. You will keep it, you will preserve it from this generation and forever.
And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.